Hello there, I'm Nim, and this is A Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. Today, we're having a look at esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistulas. If you've ever done a neonatal rotation, you've probably heard of this diagnosis and even suspected it in a neonate. It's seen not uncommonly, and it's often examined. So, they're important to know about and important to remember. Let's go! Let's start on the neonatal ward with a case. You're looking after a term male baby by the name of Travis, who at the age of about three hours had respiratory distress in the form of intermittent oxygen desaturations that is accompanied with tachypnea and mild chest retractions. His lowest desaturations are up to 90%. He has no pre- and post-ductal oxygen saturation difference. On examination, you notice that he's drooling and has excessive thick oral secretions. The secretions continue despite suction with a bulb syringe. Travis's respiratory rate is about 90 per minute, and his mum tells you that he was breastfed just prior to the onset of his respiratory distress. Auscultation of Travis's chest finds dual heart sounds without any murmurs. You can also hear some scattered crackles. He has already passed meconium. Your astute senior registrar suspects an esophageal atresia, and you order an X-ray. The first chest X-ray following admission, shows an orogastric feeding tube that is coiling back inside the esophagus at the level of the fifth vertebra. This reaffirms your suspicion of esophageal atresia. Furthermore, your registrar points out the presence of gastrointestinal aeration on the plain x-ray that suggests an existence of a tracheoesophageal fistula. While the registrar is starting some nasal prong oxygen along with inserting an IV cannula for antibiotics and fluids, you decide to do a quick chart review of Travis. You find out that Travis was born at 39 weeks and this was the first pregnancy and birth for his mother. His first trimester screen was normal. However, at the morphology scan, a stomach bubble was seen. You then find a 31-week of gestation ultrasound and see that at this time, polyhydramnius is reported. Travis has no family history of consanguity and no family history of other congenital or syndromic abnormalities. As you're wrapping up your chart review, your registrar comes along and thanks you and asks if you can refer Travis to the paediatric surgeons for definitive management. Well done. Now it's time to consolidate that case you saw on the ward. Let's start with a bit of embryology. The esophagus and trachea share a common embryologic origin. At around four weeks gestation, a diverticulum forms off the anterior aspect of the foregut in the region of the primitive pharynx. The diverticulum then extends caudally with the progressive formation of the laryngeotracheal groove, thus creating the trachea and the esophagus. This whole process is controlled by various growth factors and transcription factors, 
There's no single genetic link. However, the MMIC gene or SOX2 gene as well as the CHD7 gene may be implicated. Nonetheless, it is issues or changes in this process that lead to esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistulas. There are five types of tracheoesophageal fistulas. These can be either classed using the Gross classification from A through to E or the Vogut classification. That is type 2, 3A, 3B, 3C and 4. Let's have a quick look at the Gross classification. Type A is isolated esophageal atresia with no fistula. Type B is an esophageal atresia with a tracheoesophageal fistula involving the proximal esophageal segment. Type C is an esophageal atresia with a tracheoesophageal fistula involving the distal esophageal segment. Type D is an esophageal atresia with a tracheoesophageal fistula involving both segments. And finally, type E is a tracheoesophageal fistula without an atresia, also known as a H-type fistula. It is a common exam question, as well as a common question on the ward round, as to which type of esophageal fistula is the most common. Type C, or an esophageal atresia involving a esophageal fistula of the distal esophageal segment, is the most common, and this occurs in up to 85% of cases. The next most common type is a type A, which occurs in 8 to 10%. And if we remind ourselves, a type A is an isolated esophageal atresia with no fistula. Finally, type E is the third most common, followed by type D. And finally, type B is the least common of all of the esophageal atresia types. Remember Travis? Well, let's break down his clinical presentation. The presentation of an esophageal atresia as well as a tracheoesophageal fistula depends on the anatomical variant. Antenatally, these babies may have polyhydramnius or are unable to see a stomach on the ultrasound. The polyhydramnius is due to the baby's inability to swallow the amniotic fluid and then subsequently excrete it, so it builds up and presents as polyhydramnius. Postnatally, these children can have excessive drooling. They can also have choking or coughing immediately post-feeds, and this is due to aspiration through the fistula tract. Some babies may have abdominal distension, because as the infant cries, air enters the trachea, goes through the fistula, into the esophagus, and then onto the stomach. Significant abdominal distension does make it hard for the infant to breathe, and so this leads to atelectasis and respiratory distress and compromise. In type C and D varieties, regurgitated gastric juice can collect in the trachea. This can lead to a chemical pneumonitis and further the respiratory compromise. In type E or H type TOFs, these can present beyond the neonatal period. They may present as recurrent infections of the chest, bronchospasm or failure to thrive. These are often confirmed with endoscopic visualisation of the fistula tract.
when a diagnosis of a tracheoesophageal fistula or esophageal atresia is made, it is important to also assess the child for associated syndromes or conditions. Esophageal atresias and fistulas can be associated with vactral association. This includes vertebral anomalies with absent or hemivertebrae, anorectal anomalies such as an imperfect anus, cardiac defects, tracheoesophageal fistula, renal abnormalities such as renal agenesis, and radial limb defects. In 20 to 38% of children with a tracheoesophageal fistula, a concurrent cardiogenic or congenital cardiac anomaly is also present. 19% of infants with a tracheoesophageal fistula will have skeletal defects, and 18% can have neurological problems. Finally, renal defects can also be seen in this population, as can anorectal malformations. The diagnosis of a tracheoesophageal fistula is often confirmed when you are unable to pass a nasogastric tube or a nasogastric tube is seen as coiling in an upper pouch on a chest x-ray. You may also see dilated gastric bubble or chemical pneumonitis on a chest x-ray along with air-filled bowel loops on an abdominal x-ray. Remember Travis? That's what he had. To confirm a tracheoesophageal fistula or esophageal atresia, an upper GI contrast study may be done. All infants with esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistula should have an echocardiogram to assess for cardiac abnormalities and to assess if the aortic arch is right or left-sided. These infants also require a plain x-ray of the spine to look for vertebral abnormalities. They also need to be clinically assessed for any anorectal anomalies. And an ultrasound of the urinary tract or ultrasound KUB should be done if a baby fails to make urine or if there's any alteration in renal function on their bloods. Finally, an x-ray of hands, feet, forearms and legs should be done if any skeletal anomalies or radial limb defects are suspected. Now let's look at how to manage a baby with esophageal atresia or tracheoesophageal fistula. Think back to what the registrar did. The aims of initial management are to optimise the respiratory status, decompress the upper pouch and assess for any associated abnormalities. Additionally, arrange for timely surgical management and timely surgical review. You need to minimise the risk of aspiration from the esophageal pouch. Thus, neonates are placed in a warmer with a head at 30 degrees to prevent reflux, and a sump catheter may be placed in the upper pouch on continuous suction to minimise the risk of aspiration. IV antibiotics are often started to cover for aspiration pneumonia. Furthermore, this baby requires IV fluids and glucose. Note, avoid any IV lines on the right side as this may interfere with positioning during surgery. The premature infant can be challenging. These babies, if they have a tracheoesophageal fistula, may also have complicating hyaline membrane disease and this worsens their respiratory status, especially if recurrent aspiration is also present. 
The elevated airway pressures needed to ventilate may push air into the stomach, thereby causing abdominal distension, decreased lung expansion, and can actually worsen the respiratory status. So, there is need to minimize the positive pressure in order to ventilate, and this may be achieved by high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. If severe gastric distension occurs, a gastrostomy tube may be required for decompression. Note that the respiratory status may actually paradoxically worsen as air is pumped into the fistula instead of the lungs. This is because it is the path of least resistance. So, to avoid this, the gastrostomy is elevated and intermittently clamped or placed in an underwater seal. The ultimate, definitive management of a tracheoesophageal fistula or esophageal atresia is surgical. But note, the tracheoesophageal fistula or atresia is not necessarily a surgical emergency. The baby needs to be first hemodynamically stabilised, and this may take a day or so. The surgical procedure itself is called an esophageoesophagostomy and it can be done with open thoracotomy or thoracoscopically. Both usually enter from the right side at the back. Bronchoscopy may also be done at the same time to exclude any other upper pouch fistulae and to identify a laryngeoesophageal cleft. A transanastomotic feeding tube is also inserted at the conclusion of surgery to allow institution of feeds postoperatively. In terms of postoperative management, many infants are not intubated and ventilated, and this is to minimise the pressure on the anastomosis. However, this may not be possible if there's been significant respiratory compromise, pneumonia, or vocal cord edema, or paralysis. The retropleural drain should be frequently assessed, and if there is any saliva in it, a suspicion of anastomotic leak should be made. Some of these children may be placed on parenteral nutrition for a period of time postoperatively. Often, an upper GI contrast study is also done a week postoperatively to assess the calibre of the anastomosis and to also assess for a leak. If there are no leaks found, feeds are then slowly started. Many children will have reflux or regurgitation after an esophageoesophagenostomy, and this is thought to be due to issues with esophageal dysmotility. If the procedure itself is not able to be done as a single stage, the fistula is ligated and a gastrostomy tube is inserted. This is then followed by an anastomosis at a later date when the child and indeed the anatomy is more compatible. The three main complications to know about are anastomotic leak, strictures, and recurrent fistulas. Anastomotic leaks occur in 10 to 15% of cases. They can be classed as early or late. Early anastomotic leaks occur within the first 24 to 48 hours. These present clinically as a new pleural effusion, pneumothorax, and sepsis, and these need exploration. The surgeons may be able to primary anastomose Otherwise, the esophageal stoma may be made and a gastrostomy with later primary closure may be opted for. 
late anastomotic leaks occur after one week postoperatively. These are often managed conservatively. They can be treated with IV antibiotics, pulmonary toilets, and nutrition. A repeat contrast study is done in a week to reassess. In terms of strictures, these occur in 10 to 15% of cases, and they can be apparent early or even years later. These infants or children may have choking, gagging, and failure to thrive. Usually, these strictures become apparent with transition to solid foods. The diagnosis of this is often made with an upper GI contrast study or on an upper GI scope. Management of strictures is often dilation, using tucker dilators, or it can be image-guided with balloon dilation. Finally, recurrent tracheoesophageal fistulas can occur if there was a missed upper pouch tracheoesophageal fistula or if the spontaneous healing of the fistula tract. To finish up, let's have a look at outcomes. Predictors of poorer outcome include low birth weight, especially weight below 1,500 grams, preoperative ventilator dependence, as well as having multiple other anomalies, especially significant cardiac anomalies. In babies that are above 1,500 grams at birth and have no other abnormalities, 95% survival is expected. In babies that are less than 1,500 grams at birth or have cardiac abnormalities, the survival reduces to about 50 to 60%. In babies that are less than 1,500 grams and have a cardiac abnormality, survival also reduces. Okay, it's time to recap and call it a day. Esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistulas occur due to a failure of adequate separation or incomplete development of a foregut tube in embryogenesis. There are five types of tracheoesophageal fistulas. These range from A, B, C, D and E, with C-type or esophageal atresia with a distal limb fistula being the most common. Clinical presentation depends on the type or the variant of the atresia and fistula, but most will present with excessive drooling, coughing or choking immediately post-feeds, abdominal distension, as well as respiratory distress. The diagnosis of esophageal atresia and esophageal fistulas is made after an inability to pass a nasogastric or orogastric tube and indeed a presence of a coiled nasogastric tube in an upper pouch on chest x-ray. All infants with suspected and diagnosed tracheoesophageal fistula or esophageal atresia need to be evaluated for underlying syndromes or abnormalities. This includes an echo to look for cardiac abnormalities, a plain x-ray of the spine to look for vertebral abnormalities, clinically assessing for a patent anus, an ultrasound of the kidneys, ureter and bladder to assess for renal tract abnormalities, and x-rays of the hands, feet, forearms or legs if suspected skeletal abnormality is present. The initial aims of management 
are to optimise respiratory status, decompress the upper pouch, assess for associated abnormalities, and get timely surgical review. A sump catheter is placed in the upper pouch to decompress it. The child is given IV antibiotics, and IV fluids and glucose are started, and the child itself is kept kneel by mouth to minimise the risk of aspiration. Surgically, esophageal atresia is managed by esophageoesophagostomy. This is usually a single-stage procedure. However, if the child is too small or the anatomy is not conducive, the fistula is ligated and a gastrostomy tube is inserted, followed by a delayed anastomosis at a later date. Finally, postoperative complications to be aware of include anastomotic leaks, which can present early within the first two days or late after the first week, strictures, which can occur in 10 to 15% of cases, and also recurrent esophageal fistulas. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.